1 Samuel chapter 22, beginning in verse 6, we have the continuation of David's uh, journey. He's kind of been on the run, escaping from King Saul, uh, you may recall. And uh, we find that David has just left uh, the city of Gath. Yes, that city of Gath. Uh, where Goliath was from, a giant that he uh, defeated in battle earlier. Uh, And then after this, he, of course, uh, has to be humbled uh, by the Lord for his prideful actions. He uh, ends up having to pretend to be uh, a madman. Uh, He does so uh, in such a way that um, he... uh, brings saliva out onto his beard, which, of course, as we've said, is would have just been an absolutely uh, outrageous thing for someone in their right mind to do, as that was kind of considered, you know, a big portion of uh, of manly character, manly behavior in that time, and that would have never happened uh, on purpose. And so this convincing act, but also a disgraceful act, really uh, allows David to go free. And then as he goes free, he finds his way to a cave uh, in... Uh, Adjulam, and there his, he's there by himself for a portion of time, and uh, his uh, family comes with him uh, first, and then these other men uh, that come to his side as well. But then in the process, we see that David kind of makes this escape to the land of Moab, where he's with the king of Moab there, and, and he's trying to find refuge there in the land of this enemy. Uh, what we did say that David perhaps uh, had a little bit more favor there, uh, thinking in his mind, because his great-grandmother was uh, of Moabite origin, Ruth. Uh, you know, this was kind of her, her uh, nation, and so perhaps he thought, you know, this is a great spot for me to go uh, to find an escape. But yet we find that uh, as he's there, uh, it seems to be that the Lord is working in his life to bring conviction uh, around sin that may be unintentionally committed by David. Because we find that this uh, prophet, Gad, shows up and he tells him, like, hey, you got to get out of here. Like, you cannot stay in this spot. Because, uh, you know, uh, if you do so, it will amount to being what could be a treaty. And there's this... uh, Way back earlier in the law, there's a proclamation from the Lord that there shouldn't be a treaty with Moab, and so you got to get out of here. And so David goes back, and he uh, is now in, goes to the cave, or excuse me, to the forest of Hereth. Now, the reason that all of this happened is because David couldn't really find sanctuary. He couldn't find a place to rest because he's been on the run from Saul. But his first stop before he went to these two places, uh, it, it was a quick flight out of the city. It was a quick quick flight away from his house. His house was surrounded and he had to get out quickly. And so he's making his way out and he, he he's running on empty. He's got no energy. He's got no weapons. And so the first place that he comes to before he even gets to these places is he comes to this city called Nob. And this would have been uh, kind of this priestly city. It seems like a, a, a group of, of uh, priests kind of lived in this region, in this area. And as he's there, he enters into um, to the house of the Lord there, and he asks the priest for sustenance, for bread. He's like, hey, like I'm, I'm here, I need to eat. And, you know, he, he knows that there'll be a little bit of an issue uh, here with the priest giving him uh, this, this bread. 
And so David says, you know, I'm here on official business. Uh, I've got a, I've got a, I'm on a secret mission, really. <laughs> I gotta, I gotta come here, and I don't, I didn't, I, it was so, so secret and so urgent that I didn't bring food and I didn't bring a weapon. So what do you got for me? And so, of course, we find that uh, this priest Ahimelech here gives him some food and he gives him uh, the sword of Goliath. But we find here in this moment again that this perhaps was a lapse of faith for David. Because instead of seeking uh, refuge in the Lord, he is trying to provide for himself. But yet we find that still the only provision that comes is from the house of the Lord. Perhaps the Lord would have provided for him in a different way. Perhaps the Lord would have given him exactly what he needed had he asked the Lord. More simply, instead of running on emotion, instead of running away and moving to a place of fear and anxiety and worry and trying to take matters into his own hands. Now, as we come to the passage today, we see really uh, the byproduct, the consequences of David's actions there. We see the consequences of what happens when you go your own way, when you do your own thing apart from the Lord. Now, as we said, uh, when that happens, bad things happen. But the Lord also has a way of working these bad things together for good. What some things, uh, some things that are intended for evil, the Lord works in those to bring about our good and his glory. And so we come to the text this morning and we get the description of what happens in uh, 1 Samuel 22 as Saul finally gets word about what's happening with David, where he's been. We read this in verse 6. Now Saul heard that David was discovered. And the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand. And all his servants were standing about him. Now, before it was just David hiding, right? So it's kind of easy to hide when you got one person, right? Not too, not too difficult to tuck away. But now David's got his family. He's got 400 people with him. I'm sure that they probably brought some sort of, you know, supplies. Maybe they perhaps have some livestock. And so if you have like, uh, uh, you know, supplies enough to like kind of sustain 400 people, maybe they set up like a little makeshift farm, uh, maybe a little something outside of the, of the cave. Maybe there's a bunch of livestock kind of like grazing around there. It's kind of like, okay, well, we know where everybody's at. Right? I think that's kind of, kind of what happens here. Uh, David could have remained hidden for a long time, but you can't just hide 400 people. Like, this is kind of a little bit ridiculous. But as he's discovered, finally, as they kind of know a little bit about more of where he's, where he's at, we find that Saul is described again as holding court with his people uh, here in a tree. He's in a tree up here, and he's got this spear in his hand. He's holding this spear in his hand, and, and as we said earlier in the book, that whenever Saul has the spear in his hand, it kind of is a marker that like he's a little bit out of his mind. He's a little bit crazy, because he, he is, the first time we saw that he had a spear in his hand, it was, he was in like his palace, surrounded by all his people who were all serving him. You don't need to be armed when you're surrounded by all your people. Like That's the time where you don't need to have your weapons. But here, we find again that Saul is surrounded by his people, and it really marks his mistrust. It marks his, uh, his attitude of 
really uh, considering everyone an enemy. And here, in this particular land, he's not just anywhere, but he's in the land of his own tribe, his own clan. Right? We're told in verse 7, Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin. Right? So, so he's, again, among his own people. These are the people who were closest to him, the people that he would trust most. And yet, he remains armed. He remains prepared to fight at any moment. Because he's operating from a defensive perspective. When anyone challenges him, when anyone is coming against him, he is ready to fight. And what we said all along was that as Christians, this is not the position that we are to take. Because we don't fight our own battles. Right? This was the whole message that was supposed to go out, or that Israel was supposed to obey so long ago. The Lord told them, if we go into battle, like if you do things right, you, you won't ever have to fight. Like, I, I'll handle it. I'll handle all the business. You don't have to do anything. But again and again, Israel like, wants to meddle. They want to get their own way. They, get, they are concerned about their own uh, perspective, their own life. What are we going to do about this? And instead of trusting the Lord's work, the Lord's faithfulness. And too often, too often in our lives, we tend to be people who become defensive immediately. Defensiveness is not really something that is supposed to be a part of our lives as a Christian. We don't play defense. We don't play like that's not really something that we're ever doing because we have already been fully known by Jesus. Like there's nothing that can be hidden, right? He knows the, the depths of our hearts. He knows everything that's going on. And so you can't possibly defend anything that you've done or have failed to do, there's no reason that you can come up with that's going to make things right. You can't defend your identity. You can't defend your perspective. You can only operate from a position of humility and submission. Your best way to live as a Christian is simply uh, to give up, to raise your flag in surrender and say, I can't defend myself. Will you come and defend me? Jesus, will you work in my life in such a way that I don't have to worry about defending myself? And here, Saul, he's been unwilling to do that from the very beginning. Remember at the outset of his rule, he was told, hey, Saul, you're going to be the king. Here's the book of the king. Here's the book of the rules. Here's everything that you need to do to be successful. If you follow this, you're going to be the most successful king in history. It's going to be amazing. All you have to do is just go line by line. Here's what I need to do. Follow it. But yet he refused. I don't want to do that. I don't want to go that way. No one can tell me what to do. I'm going to do my own thing. I have my own thoughts, my own dreams, my own vision, my own perspective. It's all about him. And that's when we tend to get defensive, when it's all about us. Well, what about me? What about the way that I think about this? There is no, there is no me. There's only him. There's only Jesus. There's not room for you. There's not room for you to have your own ideas. Your ideas are bad anyways. Come on, let's just be real. You think they're good, but they're bad. They're just, they're just always bad. It seems like they're going to be good, but Jesus' ideas are perfect. Why would you ever want anything less than perfect? It's perfect every single time. Here, Saul comes out with this defensive attitude. In verse 7, he says, and, uh, and Saul said to the servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin. He's got his own clan, his own tribe, his own people with him. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you 
uh, every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of, hud- uh, of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? Right? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorrow, sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. So Saul's got all of his people around him, the people that he trusts most. Perhaps this is because nobody else would serve him at this time. Like perhaps every, the rest of the tribes of Israel, like this dude is off his rocker, like he's totally gone. Perhaps they see through it. Or maybe he only trusts his own clansmen, but it seems that maybe he doesn't even trust them. Right? Because he comes at them with these accusations. And he tries to control them He has this defensive position, but he tries to control them with two different things, with both this guilt and then he adds accusations to guilt, right? So the first thing that he says here is, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Would David reward you as generously? He's not even of the tribe of Benjamin. Why would he ever take care of you guys? Why would he ever provide for you? Why would he ever, he, why would he ever give anything to you? You can't trust him. That's what he's kind of getting at. That's what he's, he's saying here. As far as I know, it doesn't seem like anybody here is saying like, yeah, like David's offering us all this stuff. Or like, Saul, like how come you're not taking good care? Like he's just like, he's just ranting. He's just going off and saying all this crazy stuff. But he's trying to kind of guilt trip them into to, you know, to feeling bad. Like, yeah, you know, he, he wouldn't give this to you. So if you have any good feelings towards him, you should feel guilty about those. You should feel bad about those. But more than that, he tries to control them with these wild accusations. Right? He, he says this. No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me. So he blames all the people for collaborating uh, on this like strategic silence. Like you guys all know what's happening with like Jesse or or Jonathan and and David making this covenant together. And all of you guys decided that you're not going to tell me. And so that's why I'm in this position. Like, Like they all know what's happening and they've all have this like strategic way we're going, we're going to like stay quiet about it. It doesn't make any sense, first off. But more than that, Saul says, Jonathan has stirred up my servant against me. So he's saying, my son is the one who's the agitator, the one who's the provoker, who says, hey, David, like, my, my dad is crazy. Like, you should, you should raise up the... Right? Jonathan had nothing to do with that, which also makes no sense because Jonathan would be the next king. So why would he ever do that to like replace himself? No logical sense. Saul is not putting the pieces of this puzzle together. He is just wildly out of control. He's making these wild accusations against the people. He sees everyone as being against him, his own clansmen, his own son, because everything revolves around him. He's self-centered. And then he operates from this position of like self-pity, right? This is what he says. None of you is sorry for me. Nobody cares about me. Nobody sees me. I'm going through all of this and none of you guys care. You're all there just like staying quiet, not helping. You just, 
just feeling here by myself, feeling lonely. For Saul, he reveals what's kind of going on in his heart a little bit here. But it's, it's not necessarily uh, wrong to have those feelings because that's something that happens as a part of our, our sin nature. That's a part of uh, the results of the fall, right? It's kind of a part of the original lie that we were told in the very beginning. God doesn't love you. Did he really say that, like, you couldn't do this? If he really loved you, then, like, you know, you would just... The whole, the whole uh, thread that Saul is working from is that this consistent lie that God doesn't really love us, that nobody really cares about us, that we're all by ourselves, and we've got to be out for ourselves because nobody really cares. It's when you feel this way, when you feel this way, like nobody sees you and nobody cares for you, it's this moment where you will grab onto anyone or anything that will make you feel validated, that will make you feel loved, that will make you feel cared for. You'll just grab onto anything. And so you have to be steadfast in knowing, in discerning what is true and what is not true. It's precisely in this moment of temptation where you have the, the potential to glorify yourself to center things around yourself when you say, you know, nobody cares about me, nobody loves me, nobody, whatever it is. When it's about you, you have to come and fight that battle. You have to fight that battle with the truth of the gospel. You have to fight that battle with the truth of the gospel. You are loved. For God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son. Right? He gave his son to go to, uh, to go to the cross in our place. To demonstrate that we were loved. More than that, Romans tells us that he demonstrated his love towards us when we weren't demonstrating our love towards him. When we were his enemies, when we were far from him, he went out of his way to say, you really hate me right now, but I'm going to show you love. So that you might be convinced of my true love because who, who dies for their enemies? That doesn't make any sense. It's a compelling work that's happening here. Saul has this opportunity to reroute himself in the truth of the covenant relationship that he could enter into with the Lord. This is another opportunity for Saul to repent. And say, nobody sees, nobody cares. But in the scriptures, God is precisely described as being the God who sees. <laughs> precisely described as the God who sees. But Saul goes his own way. This is the nature of his hard heart. When he's vulnerable in this sense, we find then that the enemy comes. The scene is set. Saul is wallowing in his self-pity. His tribe, the Benjaminites, they're silent. They're not saying anything. They're just like, they're chilling and like he's ranting and they're just like, okay, well, like one, like we don't have this weird silent plan, so we don't have anything to say about that. 
Um, but we didn't like work with Jonathan to create this weird covenant with David to like overthrow things. Like we don't we don't have anything to say. So he's there. They're quiet. Saul's wallowing in his own self pity. And then comes another enemy, another self-serving man. In verse 9, we read this. Then Doeg, the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, or who stood by the servants of Saul, I, or excuse me, then answered Doeg, the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, and he acquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. So Saul gets exactly what he wants here. As he's wallowing in this self-pity, nobody cares about me. Nobody sees what I'm going through. Like, I'm just trying to get this thing done. Don't you know about the worrying, anxiety, and stress that I'm feeling? Like, how do I fix that? And if somebody could give me an answer about this, and we could, we could like, you know, really, this could improve things. And Israel's, like, all quiet because they don't know what's going on. Doeg steps forward. He wants to take, make the most of this opportunity to impress the king. So he tells Saul how Ahimelech, the priest, helps David by giving him like food and inquiring of the Lord for him. Just pretty straightforward things that happened here, right? Now, this is precisely how the enemy works. He tells you, he tells you true things that can be, that can be slightly twisted. Right? So when the enemy comes to, he's not going to just be like, here's like a whole bunch of crazy pack of lies that you should just also believe. It's like mostly true with like a little bit of a twist to it. And in this case, the twist here is that Doeg knows that uh, here he's only out for him, that he's only out for himself. He's only out to take advantage of this opportunity for his identity to be recognized before Saul the king. What he technically says is, is is true, right? He did see the son of Jesse coming to Nob. He comes to Ahimelech. He inquired of the Lord for him. He gave him provisions. He gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. But that doesn't say anything about like why or what happened and what he intended to do with any of these things, right? He could have just been like, hey, I'm here to sharpen the sword and bring it back to you. Like there's a, there's a whole bunch of other things that are missing, the pieces of the puzzle. But Saul doesn't care. This is only confirming his biased view of David. It's only confirming his anger, his frustration. And so we read in verse 11, Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob. And all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. Now, here's how Saul rolls. Whenever he doesn't like someone, he doesn't use their name. He calls them like son of Jesse, right? We, he stopped calling David, David a while back. He sort of only calls him son of Jesse now. Here, uh, Ahimelech is now, you know, in the doghouse. Saul doesn't like him very much, so now he's called son of Ahitub. Saul uses this tactic uh, pretty frequently. But yet, Ahimelech comes in his standard uh, way, the normal way that he would relate to the king. Here I am, my Lord. Verse 13, and Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me? You and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day. 
So Saul's approach here to deal with Ahimelech is basically the absolute worst. Uh, he just comes straight out. And he's like, hey, how come you and David are on the same team and you guys are like working together to overthrow me? He just comes straight out and assumes the worst. You are conspiring against me. You guys are out to get me. When all along, Ahimelech, all he did was provide food for David as David requested. There wasn't a nefarious plot. Like if somebody other than David had shown up and it was just like, you know, a foreigner or somebody who was poor, the law says that they should take care of them and help them. So like this could have potentially been done to literally anybody. There's not really any description here that would have been out of character with a duty that the priest would have performed. He says as much uh, in his response. Um, Verse 14, Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Now, Ahimelech just comes straight out and he just says like, I don't understand what you're saying. David's like in charge of all the bodyguards. Like he's like the he's like your favorite person, the top individual. I have zero idea what you're talking about. Why are you saying this? Which like to somebody who's crazy, that's not also what you want to say because I'm sure that this is going to stir stir us all up quite a bit. But then he comes back and he says in verse 15, "Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him?" No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. So he's like, I just did my regular thing. Like, I've inquired of the Lord a ton of times for David, just like I've done that for all sorts of people. Nothing here is out of the ordinary. And I don't know anything about the plot that you're cooking up here. I don't know anything about what you're saying. But what da- what, what Hamlet also does is he just reinforces David's perspective. He reinforces David's perspective. He says, David is loyal to you. Like, not only is he not against you, but he's loyal to you. Like, he, he, he only ever wants to help you. You are, like, you are not his enemy. <laughs> he's your enemy, but you are not his enemy, Saul. His attitude towards you is one of trying to serve you and basically now trying to stay alive. But of course, this is not enough for Ahimelech. We find the response in verse, or excuse me, for Saul. We find the verse uh, response in verse 16. And the king said, you shall surely die. Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand is also uh, hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. So Saul's had enough. He's like, these guys got to die. Like, and he says the reason why. He says here, uh, they knew that David, he's still blaming them even though they didn't know, that they knew that David fled and he, they didn't tell him. One, I don't think Saul's putting out the word. Obviously, they didn't know that David was an enemy, so they didn't know to look for him in the first place. They still didn't know even after David had been there and long gone, so it's not like he's communicating all this anyways. But beyond that, 
he, his, his command is to kill all these priests on the basis of, one, a total lie, but two, something that would have been so far outside of the law. Right? Because it's so significant here that as the result of this command, everybody who's with them is like, nah, we're not doing that. Right? They think he's crazy. They know that this is wrong. It's so significant that even his own officials are like, we're not going to obey your orders. We're not going to do that. Saul orders the death of this group of Levites. Right? They're, this is God's chosen tribe like to fulfill these priestly functions. But in doing so, Saul also further confirms his, uh, that his character, his life, is indistinguishable from the pagan kings. He's essentially a pagan king. He's no different than the kings of the other nations. He's gone so far now as even to literally oppose those who are leading the worship services, those who are acting as uh, the Lord's mediators. He's coming straight out, not, not only has he just gone his own way, now he's coming against the religious uh, functions of the kingdom. And so they don't even recognize his order. They're like, this, like, our king would never give this order. Like, that's not something that happens. So they completely ignore it. They realize that he's crazy. They don't want to listen. But then, when you are self-pitying, when you're self-centered, you go to the one person, you go to the one person who's going who's gonna to give you what you want, who's going to make it all about you. And so he turns now to Doeg again in verse 18. He's like, hey, this guy gave me the info last time when nobody wanted to help me. Maybe he'll help me again. And then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg, the Edomite, turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. Now, here's what you need to know. Doeg is an Edomite. He's not a part of Israel. Perhaps he was, uh, perhaps he was a proselyte. Perhaps he was somebody from, uh, from the kingdom of Edom who came in and uh, converted, maybe. But what we do see is that he didn't have this understanding, this proper respect and relationship for God's law, for the office of the priests. The other men who were with him totally saw that like, this is something that is not in keeping with God's law. But Doeg, he doesn't care about that. He only cares about the validation of Saul. I'm somebody who makes Saul happy when I do his orders, and I'm going to benefit from that. It's about being selfish for, for Doeg as well. He's only about himself. He's about keeping himself in power. He'll do whatever he has to do to, to maintain that grasp on power. He's now been exalted above Saul's own you know, uh, clansmen. He's like, tribe of Benjamin, nothing. Now it's just me and Saul. It seems here that apparently the priests, they didn't fight back, they didn't resist. But they went into death uh, 
in this honorable fashion. But at the same time, as gruesome as this scene is, it's interestingly enough used uh, as a fulfillment of prophecies that we got back in chapter 2. Right? It fulfills the word of the Lord against the house of Eli. Remember? Way, 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 way back, probably 40, 50 years previous to this, we find the Lord declaring this in chapter 2, verse 30. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your, this is speaking to Eli, that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress, you will look with an envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. So now we find that this is the beginning of the prophecy here coming to fulfillment. That this house of Eli, which was like, how is this going to happen? Because all of a sudden, he's got like Eli's got all these 85 descendants. Like, how, how are these guys going to like, how's this house not going to continue? Well, sketchy Doeg comes in here acting all selfishly and just slays them all. Destroys, destroys all of them. But Saul's not content with just that. And so what happens then is that he issues a ban on the city. We've talked about this before. I believe when we were studying the book of Exodus, uh, the idea of the ban, right? Something that um, it's kind of like this phrase that would have happened in the Bible where the command is given to kind of like destroy a city, and the inhabitants of a city. It's this uh, idea of the ban that would have been executed upon these cities. And, and in particular, it's used in context of cities that were not rightly representing God's character, that they weren't representing, uh, that they were really involved in pagan worship, that they were, they were moving into acts of sinful behavior that would have corrupted Israel. The description of, of one of these is, uh, of one of these cases is in Deuteronomy chapter 13. Um, it says this, if you hear in one of your cities, which the Lord your God is giving you to dwell there, that certain worthless fellows having gone out from among you and have drawn away inhabitants of the city saying, let us go and serve other gods which you have not known, then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently. And behold, if it be true and certain that such an abomination has been done among you, you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword, devoting it to destruction, all who are in it and its cattle and the edge of the sword. So a complete and total destruction of, of this city that would have been brought about. But Saul has had enough of this group of people, that he calls out for this ban to be executed now upon the city of Nob, which is so far outside of the law, again, because these people aren't worshiping foreign gods. 
They're not going after other nations. Saul's the one who's done this. But we find that he declares them guilty of this idolatry. He declares them guilty of this rebellion against the Lord. I think only in the sense that he's exalted himself to be at this position. And so we read in verse 19, And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. And so he kills all the inhabitants, all the livestock, and makes sure they're, they're all gone. Now, here is the most ironic part of this and the saddest part of this. This is exactly how Saul got in trouble in the first place. Remember way back in chapter 15? As they went out against the Amalekites, they were supposed to execute this similar ban. They were supposed to come against them as a result of uh, the Amalekites uh, you know, trying to destroy Israel when they were ex exiting out of Egypt. They were supposed to, to do this, and they went into battle. They had some victories, but they kept alive the most lucrative uh, possessions. They were like, hey, we can make a lot of money off these. This makes us rich. Let's save these. But the Lord said, no, you've got to get rid of all of these. They cared about, uh, about their status more than they cared about obedience. And Saul, he failed to accomplish it then. And then he didn't repent when he was called out on it. But here, in this instance, instead of being the king that goes in and uh, destroys this pagan nation, he instead acts as a pagan king who comes in and just obliterates one of the cities of the Lord. It's this insane reversal. He couldn't get it done when he was trying to serve the Lord, but when he's serving himself, when it's about himself, about maintaining power, he'll go to any length. There's danger in self-serving because you go to these insane lengths. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death. Saul keeps heading down this path. Apart from the Lord, his end will come. But he's done as much as he can to destroy the plans of the Lord in raising up David, to destroy the kingdom. But you can never thwart God's plans. He's always got a way to win. He's always working. He's always got a way to save and deliver. And in this case, we find in verse 22, one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. Right, so he escapes. Uh, it seems that this is the son, the Abiathar is going to be the one priest who's the one who's going to live on, who's going to cry his eyes out and weep and mourn, like this is the guy, right, that, you kinda, that is mentioned in uh, 1 Samuel 2, 33. But he goes out, he escapes, he makes it to David. We are told in verse 21, Abiathar told David, that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, 
I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. See, David reflects back on this moment when he was there with Ahimelech and he sees Doeg. He knew it would be trouble. And here's the difference between David and Saul. David just says, like, I, I, looking back, I know that that was going to be, in that moment, I knew that would be trouble. And, and I am the one to blame here. David doesn't try to hide. He doesn't say, well, it's not my fault. They should have done this or this. He's not like Saul. He's not about self-seeking. He willingly says, I occasioned this. I was the one that made this possible. And in a sense, in a sense, the death of the priest was the result of David's lying and scheming. But the result of this was twofold. The Lord used this situation to judge the house of Eli. But ultimately, Saul is the one who must bear the blame for this because he's the one who ordered it done. Even the people like knew enough to be like, no, like we're not doing this. Right? There was plenty of opportunities for people to turn around. If Doeg had not been there, either Saul would have had to have done it himself or nobody would have done it. David confesses here that like, I'm the one that brought this forth. This is the reason. And so as he has Abiathar come to him, David then makes this confession and then he says this in verse 23, stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. This is the contrast of these two kings. In verse 16, Saul says to Ahimelech, you shall surely die. As he came to Saul and he was completely truthful, Saul said, I don't really care, you shall surely die. He condemns him to death. Now David says to another priest, stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. Now this had to be a relief for Abiathar. Had to be a relief for him. Right? Because everything that he's known is gone. His identity is completely rocked. He's everything that he was, everything that he was doing, his city that he lived in. His world is completely turned upside down. His family is destroyed. All of his relatives are gone. He doesn't have a home. He's got nothing. He's literally got nothing. And at this point, there's literally nobody who sees him or cares for him. He's in the same position as Saul. He has the opportunity to self-pity. And this is that moment when you will grab onto anyone or anything. But all he does is make the confession of his circumstance, of his situation. But the difference between Saul's position and David's position is that David's not out for himself. David's not out for himself. Because he tells Abiathar, if your life is in danger, if you're afraid, if they're seeking your life, then I will keep you safe. Because they're seeking my life. 
as well. And if you hide in me, I will be your safekeeping. If they're going to come after you, they're going to have to come through me. They're going to have to make their way through me if they're going to get to you. The Lord preserved the one priest. There was one left. A single one left. You see, even though Saul tried to destroy all the priests, he couldn't. There was still one left. The Lord always is preserving this remnant. He's preserved David. He's preserved this priest. He always saves, it seems, by one. By a single, single person, it seems like. Right? I mean, we have almost this exact situation played out several times throughout the scriptures. You can look at it so many times. If you, you know, if you even connected to this, you find all the way back in the book of Exodus, Pharaoh is there and he's trying to destroy all these Hebrew children as the Hebrews are multiplying. And they're like, yo, we got to get rid of all these kids. And so he just issues this ban across all of them, like, just kill them all. Everybody under this certain age, you're all dead. But the Lord delivered Baby Moses on the Nile. Drop him in the basket, send him down. He saved Moses so he could be raised up to deliver the children of Israel from bondage in Egypt. They were still in trouble, but he saved one. We see this played out again in the New Testament through Herod the Great. Similar situation. Matthew 2, 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. As soon as he hears that there is potentially a challenger to his power, to his throne. He's like, we got to get rid of everybody. Again, a place of defensiveness, self-centeredness there for Herod. Now, the common tie here between our stories is that Herod, Herod, he is an Edomite by the fact that he is uh, descending from the Idumeans. It's the same, same region. This is essentially playing out the same situation that we find that we find in 1 Samuel 22. Herod's trying to get rid of all the priests. There's only one left. The only one we end up with, our great high priest. Jesus is delivered into Egypt until the death of Herod. And of course comes, comes back into the land of Israel, presents himself with a perfect life, absolutely without spot or blemish, going to the cross for our sake, shedding his blood for us, bearing our sin on that tree, going into the grave, being faithful to defeat death, being resurrected on the third day for our justification. And the implication therein is that we are then, as we trust in Christ for salvation, our children of God. That we're his children. That we belong to him. We're members, the scriptures tell us, of the household of faith. We're members of the household of faith. Which gives us identity and helps us navigate life. Because then we have to 
navigate in such a way that as we experience self-centeredness, as we experience self-pity, we've got to remind ourselves that we do have a Father who cares for us, who loves us. When we are tempted to feel like nobody loves us, nobody cares for us, nobody sees what we're going through, that we're in his family, we can remind each other of that. But we have to know this because additionally, the enemy opposes the children of God. He's out to get us. He's after us. And so this is why Jesus says specifically, hey, I know the enemy's coming after you, but the enemy came after me too. He came after me too. He wasn't able to destroy me. So if you lose your life and find your life in me, I'll, I'll keep you safe. I will be your safekeeping. Quit trying to save yourself. Find your safekeeping in me. Because Jesus demonstrated his faithfulness when we were far from him, when we were enemies. When we didn't know that we needed him, he was preparing this place so that we might enter into right relationship with him. And so as we navigate life, as we are, go out into the streets, as we go out into our work week, there's that temptation to work from other identities. But if you do that, you're going to find yourself in trouble. You're going to find yourself in seasons of hardship and difficulty. Because it doesn't work. Your own identity doesn't work. There's only one identity that works, and it's found in Christ. He is our safekeeping. It's the way, the truth, and the life. And so we follow him. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your kindness. Lord, you didn't have to make a way for us to be in right relationship with you, but yet you did because you loved us. And so, Lord, we want to respond in thanksgiving. We love you because you first loved us. It was you who came to save us. It was you who were after us. And so, Lord, it's our desire to respond to you and your goodness and your faithfulness in our lives. We don't want to try to fight our own battles. We, want to, we don't want to try to protect ourselves, but we want to simply run to you, our safety, our security, our refuge, our stronghold, our fortress. We want to hide in you and rest in your faithfulness. In your faithful work. And so, Lord, remind us of the truth of the gospel. Remind us of who we are in Christ. And so, Lord, we come and we bring you praise now. We love you. Amen.